The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2011 Caltech Space Challenge. This is the second lecture in our lecture series sponsored by Lockheed Martin. And this afternoon, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Paul Abel from NASA Johnson Space Center, who will be presenting to us on the, uh, some target uh, near-Earth objects and some of the motivations to visit them. Dr. Paul Abel. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, everybody hear me okay? All right, good. Um, so uh, I'm at Johnson Space Center in the Astromaterials Research and Exploration Science Directorate. And I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about um, background. Some of this uh, Don has gone over with you this morning. Um, this is going to be a little uh, reinforcement of that and also some of the other things that you may want to consider when you're uh, doing your workshop this week. Okay, just uh, as a way of outline, uh, just give you a little bit of introduction uh, about near-Earth objects, some of the uh, orbital dynamics uh, considerations and the impact threat, uh, discovery rate and population estimates of what is out there, uh, some of the characteristics of near-Earth objects, uh, some of the spacecraft missions that have flown and have, are being planned, uh, some of the human mission possibilities, and then uh, some basic conclusions. So that's basically the, the talk right there. So just by way of introduction, I think everybody is very familiar with this, but um, human exploration of near-Earth objects is now uh, stated U.S. policy. We had President Obama give a speech uh, down at Kennedy uh, last year, April 15th, and in that he outlined his uh, vision for actually sending astronauts to a near-Earth object by 2025, and then later on going to Mars uh, with humans sometime in the 2030s. Explorations of uh, near-Earth objects is also relevant to the Planetary Science Division's goals. Basically, there's a lot of science to be gained uh, by these objects. They're the leftover building blocks of our solar system formation and, and history. As Don has mentioned, we can uh, really learn a lot about not only the formation of the solar system, uh, but how we may have come to be on, on the Earth as well because of the astrobiology uh, considerations. And then exploration of near-Earth objects is also relevant for resource utilization and planetary defense objectives. Uh, some of these NEOs contain uh, a lot of uh, significant amounts, I should say, of water, uh, and some contain some precious metals. And the Earth has been hit in the past and will be hit again in the future. So this is another thing in terms of planetary defense that we need to keep in mind when we explore these, these objects. Uh, so as Don has said before, we have comets and asteroids. These are fragments that are left over from the formation of our solar system. Comets, he's already talked about, uh, have volatiles. They sublimate. They form these nice tails. They're active surfaces. Asteroids, by and large, are generally inert. They lack the volatiles um, in order to make those nice tails and sublimations. So those are the basic distinction between comets and asteroids. However, we know that uh, things always aren't that clear. This was uh, an image taken by one of my colleagues, um, Steve Larson, Catalina Sky Survey. And here was a main belt asteroid that essentially had no activity, exhibited no signs of activity. And then when he found this and he imaged it, it uh, lights up like a, a full-blown comet. So we actually see things that are examples of dormant comets or active asteroids. So there's starting to become an understanding that may be a continuum between what actually is a comet and what actually is an asteroid. Something else to keep in mind during your workshop. Uh, this is a slide just to show you the diversity of small body uh, to scale. This is courtesy of the Planetary Society, so thank you, Lou. 
Um, basically, this is a main belt asteroid, 21 Lutetia. It's a very large asteroid, it's 132 kilometers. Down here, we have uh, cometary nuclei in the lower right. Um, they're very much smaller than some of the main belt objects. These are comets, these are the rest of the asteroids. Most of these that you see on here, these are all images obviously taken by spacecraft during flybys or rendezvous encounters. Most of these asteroids you see on here are main belt asteroids. There are two near-Earth objects in here. This is 433 Eros and 25143 Itakawa. Uh, this was the target of the near Shoemaker mission. 25143 Itakawa was the target of the Hayabusa mission. For those of you back, you may be hard to see, but there's actually a dot there. Okay? <laughs> this is 33, 34 kilometers in length. This is about 500 meters in length. And this is all to scale. So this is just something to keep in mind as we go through. Some of the terminology that I'll use, um, just to give a little bit of background. So near-Earth objects are any small body, comet or asteroid, that passes within 1.3 AU of the sun. Okay? 1 AU, everybody knows, is the distance to the Earth to the sun. It's 150 million kilometers. Therefore, NEOs are predicted to pass within about 45 million kilometers of Earth's orbit. That means any small body that is between the orbits of Venus to Mars, essentially. They're a very dynamically young population. 10 to 100 million year lifetime. What do I mean by that? They're very old objects. These are leftover bits from the formation of the solar system. Solar system has been around for 4.6 billion years. But dynamically, when they actually get into the orbits, they're generated from these resources, uh, resource regions, and main belt and cometary reservoirs, they have very short dynamical lifetimes. They don't stay as near-Earth objects for very long. So they're 10 to 100 million years. That means they're being constantly replenished over time. Because if uh, we only had 10 to 100 million year lifetimes over the age of the solar system, they would be wiped out and we wouldn't see any. But we constantly see this population, so they're constantly being generated. Where do they come from? Near-Earth asteroids, 90% originate from the main belt asteroid population through interactions. 10% are produced by cometary reservoirs. Okay, this is the Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud. 10%, as Don has mentioned, these are sort of uh, NEOs that look like asteroids but are actually maybe dormant or very low activity comets. We also have near-Earth comets, very classical comets with the nice tails, and currently there are about 90 of those are, are known. So these are Earth approaching comets. Of this entire near-Earth object population, there's a subset of the population called potentially hazardous objects. And that's a small body that has a chance of impacting the Earth at some point in the future. Okay? The rule of thumb is NEOs passing within 0.05 AU of Earth's orbit can be considered potentially hazardous. That basically means about 8 million kilometers or 20 times the distance to the moon from the Earth, anything passing within there. 20%, about one-fifth of all the NEOs, are considered potentially hazardous. Some of their classification terminology, so there's four main dynamical groups of near-Earth objects. There's the Amores, the Apollos, the Aetons, and the Atiras. What I've plotted here is the sun is this yellow dot, Earth's orbit is this bold line, bold circle that you can see, and then the asteroid orbit is the thin oval that you see on the screen. Amores, their orbit lies entirely outside of Earth's orbit. They don't actually cross. The same thing with the Atiras, it doesn't cross the orbit, but lies entirely within Earth's orbit. The objects of interest for this workshop and for other reasons, are the Earth-crossing asteroids. These are Aetons and Apollos. 
These are objects that come very close to Earth, actually cross Earth's orbit and potentially even impact the Earth. So these are the objects of interest. This is just a slide to show you that we've been hit in the past. Uh, again, don't get excited. These dots aren't to scale. These are to show you um, locations of craters uh, on the Earth, uh, the relative size, their diameter in miles, uh, and their numbers. What you'll notice, too, is that there are a lot of impact structures that are found in very old rocks. Uh, Canadian Shield, uh, Europe, Australia, and South Africa. The reason why they're found there is these rocks are very old but very, very strong. Right? They're more resistant to erosion. We do have impacts that happen, obviously, in the, in the ocean, but they're eroded away over time. Okay? So we can preserve a record of impact events on these old cratons, as they're called. We get hit continually today, all the time. This is a slide um, showing uh, impacts from 2003-2005. This is data from uh, fireball, uh, ex high explosions in the upper atmosphere that are seen by uh, Department of Defense assets looking down, looking for other things. I won't tell you what those other things that they're looking for, because I can't, can't tell you that. Um, but they're looking for other things, and they see these flashes, these explosions. So every one of these dots you see here is an event that they've recorded. We get about 30 of these bursts per year. And they're very small uh, asteroids. They're a few, few meters across. Sometimes we get a, a, a relatively big one, and people get excited. It's just to show you that we do have these things happen all the time. So we've been hit in the past. We continually get hit now. And we will uh, have impacts happen almost certainly in the future. All right, I wanted to go over a little bit about the discovery uh, rate of the uh, near-Earth object population. Uh, and in terms of asteroids, in the year 1800, we didn't know anything about asteroids. Okay? Sun is at the center. This is the orbit of Mercury, Venus. Earth and Mars. Okay? I'm going to step through in time. And in 1850, 10 asteroids were known and named. Okay, so what I'm going to see, you're going to see, start to see some dots appear. And the legend over here on the left hand side tells you that the green dots uh, are main belt asteroids. Okay? Orbit of Jupiter is off the, off the scale here. So you're going to see this region around here fill up with green dots. Keep in mind, main, main belt asteroid is between. Mars and Jupiter. 1900, okay, we get a few more. I get some, uh, a lot more green dots out here. You start to see some yellow dots now. These are the Amor asteroids. These are objects that lie entirely outside of Earth's orbit, but approach Earth at their perihelion, okay? 1950, now we've got 2,000 uh, known objects with a handful of Earth crossing. The Earth crossing asteroids are the red dots. These are the Atons and Apollos, okay? So we're going to keep stepping through. Here we are in 1900. We now have over 9,000 objects known. 2,000. So we have automated search telescopes. Brings up the total count of up to 86, over 86,000. 2007. We're getting really, really busy, and it gets interesting. And this is where we are today from the Minor Planet Center. We have over 560,000 small bodies. That's including everything, right? That's main belt asteroids, near-Earth objects, comets, Kuiper belt objects. It's everything. Of that population, we have a little over 8,200 near-Earth objects. And here are the breakdown in terms of Atons and Apollos. Roughly, it's about 1336 potentially hazardous. 
Okay, that's what we know of today, right? In terms of the entire population, objects that are bigger than 140 meters in diameter, equal to or bigger, we're looking at around 25,000 plus-ish, okay? If you go down to 50 meters and up, you're looking at 300,000 plus. And if you go down to diameters of 15 meters and up, then you're looking at millions of these objects. So there's a couple, couple things I want you to take away uh, from this slide. I want you to take away from this slide. One is don't lose sleep. Guys, you're good. Don't worry about it. That's something for me and, and Don and a few other people to worry about. Um, these dots are not drawn to scale. Right? If I drew these to scale, you wouldn't see them. But we also know there's not this wall of material between us and the outer solar system. Right? We've sent spacecraft out there, and they haven't run into anything uh, big like that. But the thing I want you to really take away from this is we're getting a better handle on our uh, inner solar system environment. These objects have always been there. It's just that we're getting a better understanding. We have better search technologies, better instrumentation, better telescopes to look for these objects. And the other thing to note is look at all the red dots that hang around Earth orbit. Okay? They're potentially hazardous, yes, but they're also some of the easiest objects to go to in terms of the delta V needed. So this is what we call at NASA a target-rich environment. Right? There's lots of targets for us to go out and get. So that's the main thing I want you to take away from this slide. Here it is another way. This is a, a sort of graphical uh, depiction of the uh, near-Earth asteroids only. So here we are in terms of number on the y-axis. X-axis is the year. And you'll see a red and blue curve. Red is the large near-Earth asteroids. Blue is all near-Earth asteroids, no matter what the size. Right? Red is anything about a kilometer in diameter and up. And the reason why we focused on these is because these are the ones that present the biggest hazard in terms of extinction-level events, right, from a planetary defense standpoint. So when we had the Space Guard survey start, which is right here, this is a man mandated uh, NEO search effort, begins right around 1998, you can see we start taking off. Well, we're doing pretty well in finding all the one-kilometer objects. It's starting to heal over in terms of an asymptotic limit. And right now, we're, we think we're um, right at about 90%. So in terms of the Space Guard survey, in terms of getting a handle on the majority of the one kilometer uh, diameter and, and near-Earth objects, we're doing pretty well. However, we've got a lot more work to be done on the smaller objects. Right? You can see how this is just continually going straight up. Right? So there's a lot more objects to be found. And that was another uh, thing I put on the slide previously. Right? We have over 300,000 plus objects that are 50 meters in diameter up. Okay, so what do we do? What do we know about asteroids and comets? How do we get our information? So basically, we have lots of lines of evidence. We use data from meteorites and dust particles. All right? We have information that is delivered to us in hand sample. But basically, this is biased. This is a biased sample, because it's only what reaches us dynamically and what can get through our atmosphere. So that's something to keep in mind. We also have optical and radar observations. Again, this is biased in terms of brightness, the size, distance, and albedo. Remember I mentioned albedo before, whether something is very light or very dark. As I mentioned, 90% of all NEOs larger than one kilometer are known, but we only have a few percent down to the 50-meter level that have been detected. So we've got a lot more work. 
We have some information that we get from theory and modeling, so binary formation. Remember Don mentioned that some of these objects are binary or even triple systems. So we have some theory in, uh, on the binary formation and crater studies help inform us of, about what the internal structures of these near-Earth objects may be. And then we also have direct evidence from spacecraft missions, such as the near Shoemaker mission and the Hayabusa mission, the Japanese mission to went to Itakawa. Okay, this is a very wordy slide. I don't expect you guys to, to read it all, but there's a couple things. There's uh, the composition, not only in terms of internal structure, right? We talked about internal structure previously this morning, but in terms of composition, the near-Earth object population is very diverse. We have lots of different types of meteorites, all from iron, nickel iron, battleship armor, all the way to carbonaceous type, very friable, rocky type materials. There's a whole alphabet soup of different types, and I mentioned this to one group. You have taxonomic types all the way from A to X, all right? When you look at an asteroid using ground-based sensors, you try and put it in terms of taxonomy. It's suggestive of composition, but is not exactly composition. So an A-type asteroid and an S-test asteroid are different, right? They're probably different compositionally. But if I take a C-type asteroid and I take another C-type asteroid, they may be also very different. And I used the example uh, previously this morning with one group. It's like you have a taxonomy of feline, and it's standing right next to me, all right? That's taxonomy. But I really want to know if that's a nice pussycat or a Bengal tanger, all right? That's the difference and why we want to know about these NEOs. Two main types in the near-Earth object population, we have C-types. Um, these are very dark. Typically, the albedos are about 3 to 9%. And then we have the S-types, the silicate-rich. They have higher albedos. They're around 10 to 35%. But we also get other different types of asteroids out there. We have basaltic, iron-nickel, enstatite, mixtures of ice rock and metal compositions. So lots of wide variety of compositions and a wide range of albedos, anywhere from 2 to 55%. So that's something else to keep in mind when you're talking about uh, the object. If you only have just a uh, brightness, you have to keep in mind the albedo because that'll be a real strong bearing in terms of what the actual size of the object is. Okay, this is an image of an Earth object. This is a taken from one of the search telescopes, and basically that's it. That's what it looks like, and that's what they're basing their initial um, orbit on. You get some uh, observations. You get enough of these observations, you get an arc. You have enough con confirming observations from different telescopes over a different time. You get a long enough arc, and you can get a very accurate orbit. Some of these objects that they find are um, essentially lost. They've only had an uh, arc for maybe a day or maybe even only one observation, it can't be confirmed. So we know there's an object out there, but it's effectively lost, per se. It can't be recovered in the future by other telescopes. That's optical. And from that, if you get enough observations, obviously ground-based characterization telescopes can tell you something about the uh, taxonomy, maybe something about the composition as well, if you get enough data in terms of spectral information. But we also have radar telescopes. This is a radar image of a binary asteroid. So the radar beam is coming down from the top. Here's the secondary, here's the primary. When you actually get a good signal noise on radar, you pretty much nail the orbit of the target. But radar is constrained, right? The radar beam can only go out so far because you have the art of the fourth problem of the return and the data. So basically, 
you can nail the position, you can nail the orbit, but also you can actually image the target as well if you get a good enough signal to noise. So here you can actually get a handle on the rotation rate, and you can see it actually has features. So you can start making models. This is a model of 1999KW4. And you can see it's a binary system. The primary spins relatively fast. This obviously is sped up. This rotation period is a little over 2.2 hours. This uh, secondary is locked, and it librates a little bit, but it's essentially locked to the primary. Okay? And we see primaries on the order of just under a kilometer, maybe a kilometer, and secondaries maybe a few hundred meters in diameter as well, and everything in between. The, the telescopes that we use to use that, uh, Goldstone radar, planetary radar here in California, and the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Both are really key assets for us uh, to get characterization information on our, our near-Earth objects. Okay? Okay, we've had several missions uh, to small bodies uh, go in the past. This is a timeline. The flags that you see, basically European flags, Russian flags, Japanese, and of course American flags. These are all missions that have gone. Um, the blue text represent missions that have gone to comets. The black text are missions that are planned or have gone uh, to asteroids. Okay? Um, we've got a few upcoming highlights that I wanted to share with you. Uh, we've got a, a NASA's OSIRIS-REx was selected, just a recent selection. It's going to be launched in 2016. It's going to come back hopefully around 2022 uh, with its sample. JAXA is uh, going to do a, a second mission, Hayabusa 2. It's going to be launched in 2014. And they're actually thinking about other follow-on missions to asteroids, in particular in terms of sample return. And then Marco Polo is a European uh, mission that is under consideration. It's a finalist uh, for their Cosmic Visions program. And that also is a sample turn. So we have three missions that are coming up, or potentially three missions, two for sure, maybe Marco Polo as well, if it gets selected by ESA, for sample return missions in the future. So again, very exciting time to be in near-Earth object science. Okay, everybody good so far? I want to pause and see if there are any questions. If they're not, I continue on, and then you can... Bombard me later on. Any questions right now? Yes, sir. What is the, uh, the target design for Osiris Rex? Yes. 1999 RQ36. Sort of rolls off the tongue. Yes, sir. So you, you showed a graph of all these asteroids which have actually uh, come to the Earth. Uh, the one where you showed the uh, data spread all around the Earth. Mm -hmm. The, you're talking about the fireballs, the, the fireball, the, the black chart with the, the recent, yeah, yeah. Those are, those are upper atmosphere airbursts. They happen at around 70 kilometers average altitude, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower, depending on the object and how fast they're coming in. But yeah, they're airbursts. They don't, they don't make it all the way to the ground. Yeah, so the, I know it depends on the angle at which they're coming in and their speed, but how large do they have to be before we, we know that they're going to come and hit the surface of the Earth? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, before, a few years ago, most people would think that uh, you wouldn't get anything lower than 30 meters making it to the ground intact and at a hypersonic impact, right? We have meteorites that fall, but they hit at terminal velocity. Those are, those are different type of impact, right? Um, the rule of thumb is about 30 meters. It's depending on composition. If you're iron, you can get through the atmosphere. You know, for a small size, you can get through the atmosphere uh, generally intact at high speed. Uh, whereas if you're a weaker uh, sort of a rubble pile, fractured object, 
you have to be a little bit bigger before you make it all the way down to the ground. The preference is that you will, if you're fractured in rubble pile, you, you're primarily going to be air bursting rather than getting to the ground. Of course, if you get over a certain size, if you get upwards at least of a kilometer, maybe a little bit low kilometer, it doesn't matter what you're made of in your internal structure, you're going to make it all the way down on the ground. However, we did have an event in Peru a few years ago where we had a very small asteroid um, and by all the models and our understanding should not have made it to the ground at a hypervelocity, and yet it did. And it was only about five meters. So that's something that, that you, know, you have to be aware of and, and take into consideration. So there's some things that we, we need to know about in terms of their, um, their interaction with our atmosphere, in terms of these near-Earth objects. But by and large, things that are 30 to 50 meters, say 50 meters, probably our atmosphere protects. Everything else will, will airburst or get down to the ground-ish. But again, it depends. So you have to keep that in mind. OK, I'm going to move on, and then we can take more questions later. So here's just a comparison, again, to scale, and I'm going to zoom in. These are main belt asteroids. This is one series and four Vesta. These are the targets of the Dawn mission. OK, this is a great mission. It's being run uh, by UCLA and, and JPL. It's a NASA uh, mission. Four Vesta, it's at right now. These are Hubble images. These are the rough diameters. This is the image of, of Mars, the limb of Mars. And to scale, this is 433 Eros, probably the largest near-Earth object, about 34 kilometers. So this is just a highlight. This is uh, Dawn at Vesta. If you guys have not seen the, gone to the Dawn site, I encourage you to do so. There's some fantastic images that will blow you away in terms of what this planetary surface is like. It's an, it's an amazing, amazing object. So again, this is just a scale. So here's Vesta again. And this is 21 Lutetia. Remember the previous slide I showed you how big Lutetia was? Well, here it is compared to Vesta and then everything else in between. So here we have main belt asteroids. This is a near-Earth. It's a main belt. This is a main belt. And this little dot inside that circle, which you can barely see, that's Itakawa. Again, that's just to keep things in perspective. And that's half a, a football field long. Or sorry, 500 meters long. Five football fields long. Half a kilometer long. So here we now uh, zoom in. This is Eros. This is Itakawa for scale. Okay, 33, 34 kilometers length, 500 meters-ish. Here's Itakawa compared to the space station. 540 meters. This is the space station with its solar panels fully deployed, 100 meters. And here's the multi-purpose crew vehicle. Okay, also, it was previously known as Orion, but now we call it Multi-Purpose Crew Vehicle, or MPCV for short. It's a solar-powered spacecraft, so when it puts out its solar panels, its cross-section is 17 meters. Okay. Compare that to this rock here. This is called Yoshinidai, named after the address for, for JAXA's Space Exploration Agency in, in near Tokyo. This is 50 meters in length. Okay, that's the same size order object that created the... Um, Meteor Crater in, near Winslow, Arizona, and also the same size order object that came in over Tunguska, Siberia in 1908 and exploded at altitude. Okay, Just to keep, keep that in perspective. So here's our, our favorite asteroid. Uh, Don showed you this uh, image or similar images of this. Um, its axis of rotation is this way. It rotates in and out of the board. It's a 12-hour rotation period has some very smooth areas. About 20% of its surface is covered in the smooth areas, gravitational load, but has some very, very rocky uh, terrain as well. This is a rubble pile asteroid. 
The interior structure is about 40% porosity. We don't know what the interior size distribution of the components are. It could be all like this, all jumbled, different size. It could be a couple pieces, one big piece here, another big piece here. But we don't really know. All we can tell you is that it has a 40% porosity. It is actually a rolling pile. It's changed our whole paradigm, the way we think about these uh, small near-Earth asteroids. OK, if, <laughs> just for fun, uh, this is what it would look like if it came to uh, San Francisco. It's not going to come to San Francisco, so we're all good. And then as another aside, so vegetable, animal, or mineral? <clears throat> OK, so this is an international workshop, right? And one of the objectives is to be able to work internationally. And international cooperation is a big thing at, at NASA in the future. When we're, we're going to do these type of missions, we've got to think internationally. So I'm going to share with you a funny story. Um, some of us were working with uh, the Japanese, and I was, I was very fortunate to be on the mission. I was uh, part of the NASA team that supported the Japanese in some of their endeavors. And when we were there, they kept referring to um, Itakawa as a certain type of animal, right? So we're looking at, at this, and every time we see uh, in the United States NASA missions, we see asteroids, we always think of them as food, think something we like to eat, whether it be a hot dog, a peanut, a potato. And so it obviously says something about our culture and our mindset. We always want to eat everything. But the Japanese, so they refer to this as, a, as an animal. And my colleagues, my Japanese colleagues, were referring to it as the, the she-cat. And we had no clue what they were talking about. Finally, I realized this was actually the sea-cat, S-E-A-C-cat. Still had no clue. We, we looked at blank. And so in sort of frustration, one of my Japanese friends, see, it's obvious. See, this is a sea-cat. He drew this. <laughs> and it didn't really help that much. Um, so he was getting really, really irritated and decided, OK, I'm going to go to the internet and just show you. And finally, he pulled this up. So there's a, a few things lost in translation. But it's really, it's really neat to see the different perspective when you work with internationals on some of the things. And this is, again, this is a funny story. But they have very different ways of, of doing things. And I think we can learn and leverage a lot of the good uh, aspects of working internationally. Okay, So that was a funny story. But anyway, and that really happened. I mean, yeah. So here's his head. Here's his body. This is a sea urchin he's eating. <laughs> I don't make this up. Uh, OK, so getting to the mission now. So this is a Hayabusa uh, image. It's taken from about uh, just under 4 kilometers. Scale bar there of 10 meters. And this was a potential landing site. And as scientists, you want to land and, and go down and, and experience the target as much as possible. Because we would like, I mean, I love rocks. I want to just get down there and find everything and explore. The engineers, on the other hand, their first priority is survival of the spacecraft and survival of the mission. And they're like, no way in hell are you landing there. Because when they got higher resolution images, they found out there was way too many obstacles. So this was excluded from consideration. Okay. This is actually where we ended up going. We actually touched down, landed right underneath the letter A, under the point A. This is the Musa C region. Again, the distance is around 4 kilometers from the asteroid. 10 meter scale bar. This, this width here is about 60 meters. And it's a location between the head and the body of the otter. And this is where we actually went. You can see, is, remember how Don said there was not many craters on, on Itakawa? And they get filled in. Well, here's some evidence. Here's some very uh, small impact craters, but you can see how they're sort of filled in by this material. 
the idea is that you have material moving down to these gravitational lows and collecting. So you have material coming in that's filling in these, this region in the neck, covering up these uh, impact craters. All right, this is a really neat image. So here we have um, effectively a spacecraft taking a, an image of itself. This is the shadow of a spacecraft. It's a five, five meter scale bar. Here's what Hayabusa looks like in shadow. The sun is almost directly behind us. Keep in mind we're a solar powered spacecraft. This bright dot in that black circle is a target marker that was released. All right, the target marker was one of these guys. You can see it here better on the lower right hand side. There are three um, sort of reflectors, target markers. They're about softball size, about yay big. They're coated in very highly reflective material that the spacecraft had a strobe light that would fire, and the reflection of this target marker would help give it a reference point to the surface to help the uh, autonomous navigation and control get to the surface. Think of them as disco balls in space. That's how I like to think about it. Right? It also had a LIDAR system, lasers that it uses. But keep in mind, when we're doing this mission, this is a robotic mission, the round trip time, communication time, was 32 minutes. So when you're coming into an asteroid to land on a surface, right, a lot of things are happening. You've got this sort of uneven terrain. You've got the asteroid is rotating. You've got a 32-minute flight time delay. So if you're going to do this robotically, you're going to have to have a very good autonomous navigation guidance and control system. Humans don't have to worry about that because they're going to be right there up close and personal with the object. The, this, this rotation period actually was pretty forgiving. This was a 12-hour rotation period for you to count. And this actually was a relatively slow approach. But even with this, this is in the first initial touchdown, um, the spacecraft got confused. And actually, um, we came down. When I say we, it's a spacecraft, right? Uh, came down. Uh, it evidently saw an obstacle it didn't like, boosted itself back up, and then got really confused and actually sort of crash-landed and stayed on the surface for 30 minutes. Was only supposed to stay, touch down on the surface for a second to obtain a sample and come back off. And uh, that's when we think some of the, the damage was actually done to the spacecraft. Made it a bit difficult to get back. But we made it back. So this is the area where uh, the touchdown uh, attempt happened, where we think we actually got a sample. I'm going to zoom in. I'm going to show you three images here. And this is it. This is a scale bar, one meter. These are three images mosaic together. This is the height of the images when they were taken. The spatial resolution that you'll see here is six to eight millimeters per pixel. So you're actually looking at pea gravel type size material, the smallest structure. You get some bigger boulders here, some bigger rocks. But one of the things that is neat about this slide is that you see a size sorting. Bigger stuff is located up here. Smaller stuff is going down this way. So this is sort of like downhill on the asteroid. Even with these small bodies, very weak gravity fields, you do have gravitational influences, microgravity geology, as it were. So it's something to keep in mind when you design or think about your missions. OK, so Don has shown you this uh, slide this morning. This is the last slide taken from Eros. Okay, And for scale and reference, this is uh, the slide from where we think the sample horn touched down and may have gotten a sample from Hayabusa. This is a one meter scale bar. Again, just to give you an idea of, of, of difference in scale. And this is the pavement behind Johnson Space Center Building 31. And there's someone's boot there for, for reference. Again, 
you're looking at gravel, pea gravel type material, six to eight millimeters per pixel in terms of the resolution. That's the smallest elements we can, we can do. We also ignore the car and the sunbather. My Japanese friends have a good sense of humor. But, but this is, the, this is the, the rocks. This is another. Remember, we had that smooth terrain. Well, this is a very rocky terrain on the surface. And not only is it very rocky and angular, there's a two-meter scale bar, but this side, the middle, and this side of the image, there's a difference in 12 meters of elevation. So you not only have all these obstacles, but you've got this really undulating terrain as well that you have to deal with. It makes it very challenging for a robotic spacecraft but maybe not so bad for a human astronaut on EVA doing a, doing a spacewalk, trying to get a sample. The other thing that was um, interesting, really interesting, was that when we looked at, at Itakawa, we found, this is a different version, so here's the head and here's the body. We found lots of different types of rock on the surface, and in particular these black boulders. These black boulders were 30% darker than the rest of the train. <laughs> And it was kind of frustrating because we'd only got limited information. We couldn't get a sample of them, and we couldn't get our sensors adequately on them for very long. Um, so this, this object right here, this is a 10-meter black boulder, and we saw other objects on it. So is that altered material from Itakawa, you know, that's just changed, or something indigenous to Itakawa, or is it from some other type of asteroid? In other words, was it just swept up as it's going through the solar system? Or maybe that was a piece of the the original asteroid that created the Itakawa, smashed into it. All right, human missions to NEOs. Why do you want to send humans? Okay, human crew. Basically, they're very adaptable, and they have brains that they can use to adapt to situations in real time. They can directly interact with the surface via a variety of methods. They can test one thing's not working, they can try something else. We've seen this time and time again with all the missions that we do in terms of even Apollo, uh, Gemini, ISS, shuttle. Humans are very uh, adaptable. There's no communication delays. We don't have to worry about command and control, at least at the asteroid. It's something we have to consider when we're talking back and forth from mission control here on Earth to the crew. But with the astronauts actually physically there, we don't have to worry about it. Sample return. We're not restricted to just a few kilograms or less. In the, in the case of the Hayabusa mission, it was like nanograms. We can get lots of material from the surface. And we collect it in a, a good geological context from different locations via the astronauts or other assets that they're using. So you know if this is the top, this is the rock they picked off the surface, this is the orientation of that rock. Oh, by the way, this is the soil that was underneath that rock. Stuff that the astronauts are very good at. And then collection of different or unusual samples. I use the black boulders on Itakawa. There's a good example of the, the orange glass on the Apollo 17 that the astronauts were able to see, visually recognize, and then go after and collect. Been a bit more challenging maybe for robotic spacecraft to be able to see all those differences and, and go after those targets of opportunity, as we say. And then you've got to test attached payloads for surface operation and subsequent retrieval. These can be Science payloads, they can be engineering payloads, they can be ISRU, but you're dealing with a microgravity regime and then possible rubble pile nature. All right? Those are things that have to keep in mind. You've got a high porosity. If you attach to something, say you attach to that boulder, you know, Yoshinidai, you could be well anchored to it, and then maybe you do something, and then you pull off the whole boulder. Your anchor is very good to that boulder, but that boulder may not be well anchored or coupled to the rest of the surface. So that's something else to consider, especially dealing with rubble piles. And then I talked a little bit about ISRU. 
and source resource utilization. Applications, either you're just trying to extract water or produce metals, and just demonstrate that it can be done. Okay, so here are the things that you guys probably need to consider, and you probably, I'm sure you're considering uh, as we speak, or have even last night. Got to, you know, can we get to it? You know, what are the exploration systems that we have? Can we get to the orbits? Where is the object located? How long are we going to do the mission for? The number of launches that are going to be involved, the number of launch windows, the delta V required to get there. All those things need to be considered. You have the discovery rate, and you also have remote characterization. We can do this from ground-based assets. You can also do this from space-based assets. We have existing search telescopes. We have new telescopes that are being developed and planned. There's a telescope in Chile that's uh, supposed to be built sometime later this, this decade and operational. It's an 8.4-meter telescope called the LSST, Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And it'll hope find a lot more of these targets. But again, it's situated on the ground. A lot of our targets, the most accessible ones, are in Earth-like orbits. You can only find those from space-based assets. Very difficult to observe from Earth. And then in-situ characterization. You may want to consider some robotic precursors for detailed characterization. Some things you can do from the ground fairly well. If you can see the object and you have enough time on it and it's big enough and bright enough, you can get an idea. If it's close enough, you can get radar on it. If it's not, then you don't have radar. You have to figure out some other means of getting the information that you need in order to help inform things for the crew. Wide range of compositions and internal structures. Knowledge of the, the environment helps reduce your mission risk, planning, your proximity operations and your surface activities and enables a better science return. Okay? Again, just to emphasize, you really want to know, you're sending crew in there, you want to know what potential hazards may be there in the first place and have a plan. You're going to have a general plan, the crew are going to be able to adapt from that plan, but they don't want to go, you don't want to send a crew in cold. Then you also want to understand the radiation environment of the near-Earth object and deep space. This is true for this mission, but also other missions that you do. So you need to do that. Keep in mind, as Don said, one out of every six NEO seems to be a binary or maybe even a triple system. You've got a particle environment that you may have to deal with, right? So what's the surface particle size distribution for these objects? And what's the potential for dust debris levitation in a microgravity environment if you're doing things sort of like when you're swimming or you're scuba diving, you kick up a lot of silt, all of a sudden, you've got a lot of stuff in the water. It obscures your vision. Is it just a nuisance or is it an actual hazard? Will these particles adhere to your suit, prevent you from operating? Maybe it's a hazard to equipment. Maybe you can't operate your airlock very well. Those are all things we need to know about it. And then active surfaces and volatiles. So ground-based data suggests that some of these near-Earth objects may be dormant or extinct comets. It'd be nice to know the potential for that before sending astronauts in, activating something, and all of a sudden, you've got this material flying out at you. And this is a, just to use an example, this, you've seen this image uh, this morning. This is Comet Hartley 2, the nucleus of Hartley 2, about two kilometer. It's a small comet, but you've got all these jets throwing off material. Here is the snowstorm, snowstorm. So it, it goes in and out of focus, but basically this is image processing. So here's the nucleus, here's some of these jets you can see, and all these things you see are not stars. They're actually material that snowballs anywhere from golf ball size, maybe even to bigger, bigger size particles that are in, coming off the surface. So you can imagine astronauts 
with their spacecraft trying to get close to that object, you know, how are they going to navigate in and around that? What's that going to do to the mission complexity? Here's another, another image of the same thing. Okay, so that's again, it's something else that we need to keep in mind when we do these type of missions, plan for these type of missions. So here's your sample design reference mission. This is just an example. Don't take this literally. This is just one very high level way of doing it. You have a number of launches, either a heavy lift vehicle or whatever, number to be determined. You launch up your stack of things. For this example, we just used chemical propulsion. You have a, a certain number of rendezvous, assemble everything. You fire off your stages. You have a trans-neo injection. You have an orbit insertion. Then you stay at your asteroid with your Orion or MPCV habitat and some other modules for about two weeks. Again, or five days or however long you, you deem necessary to do all the activities that you need to do. And then you come back, you stage, you come back, maybe you expand the habitat, put it somewhere else, and then come in with the crew and all your precious cargo. And right now, we're planning for a water, water landing. Again, that's the, this is the NASA way. You guys are, are much smarter than we are. So for this workshop, you're going to try and figure out how to do this better and the, all the options that will help us do this in the future. Okay, this is just an a, a example of um, one of the targets. I'm sure some of you probably already found this target. This is 1999 AO-10. Uh, this was a target, again, this was just using an example for a mission in 2025-2026. This uh, axis here and this axis here, these are in 50 million kilometer increments. Earth orbit in green, asteroid orbit in red, you're looking down on the sun. Okay, so that's just to show you the type of orbit with respect to the Earth's orbit that we are looking at for these types of human missions to give us these low delta V round trip. And here it is from the Earth fixed frame. Moon's orbit up here is to scale in the upper right. Again, now the tick marks are one kilometer, one million kilometer increments. Okay, so basically this mission would launch. Again, this is just a reference. September 19th, 2025 would fly out Rendezvous with the asteroid on January 8th, 2026. Stay there for two weeks. You fly with it. Fly with the asteroid for two weeks. Do all the things you want to do. Jump off and come home by February 26th, uh, February 22nd, 2026. Again, so this is a 150-day mission, roughly. Again, just a reference as an example. Right? And this is what it would look like if you were roughly 9 million kilometers away. Let me go back. This distance out here, when you're rendezvous, you're about 9 million kilometers from Earth. And this is what it would look like. This is a painting by one of my friends, uh, Bill Hartman. Uh, he did this back in 1982. This is a near-Earth asteroid. This down here is the Earth-Moon system. That's what it would look like 9 million kilometers away. It's literally a pale blue dot. So it would be a very, very impressive and have a high impact on the general public, seeing human beings out this far. It puts the Earth and the Moon in perspective with, with respect to our solar system. So I'm almost done. I've got this, and I've got a, um, a short video that I, I'd like to, to share with you. So a few takeaway thoughts. 
This is an image, by the way, from another one of my colleagues, Dan Durda. Um, this asteroid is way too close to Earth. Um, but here you can see this is the MPCV and some astronauts on EVA doing some, some operations, sample collection, et cetera. So a few takeaway thoughts. Okay, so we have NEOs for exploration, right? Whenever you do all these missions, you're not going to do this type of mission for one thing only, right? There's got to be a number of reasons, and I'm going to go through all the reasons why you would do human missions to these objects. So for exploration, we really want to get out and start operating beyond low Earth orbit. We want to go back to the moon, but you also want to get to Mars and beyond. If you want to do this, near-Earth objects make a great place to try and test out the technologies, all the equipment, all the operation things that you need. You need to work on propulsion, reliable propulsion and life support for long-duration missions, plus get around that radiation issue. Near-Earth objects allow you to do that in terms of stepping stones, as, as Don mentioned. Stepping stones out, do a number of those missions. By the way, we've got two asteroids at Mars, Phobos and Deimos. Learning about asteroids, how to operate on asteroids, how to extract material from asteroids may help us learn how to use Phobos and Deimos for future human architectures, exploration architectures to Mars as well, and then even beyond. So NEOs for exploration. NEOs for science is pretty much a no-brainer. You know, learning about the materials from the earliest stages of formation of the solar system are very important scientifically. Astrobiology is really big. If we go to some of these um, objects that have a lot of organic, a lot of water, it helps us learn about where we may have come from originally. So for science, it's very important as well. For resources, a lot of these NEOs potentially have high uh, amount of resources. Some of these meteorites that I uh, alluded to, carbonaceous meteorites, have about 30% water by weight. So choosing the target, all things being equal, if we can get to it and get back, it may be interesting to go to one of these volatile-rich targets for resource utilization. Water is propellant. It's also life support. Using it in place will enable future exploration. Very, very important. Water is precious. Metal is also precious. So that's another consideration. Some of these meteorites have a lot of precious metal that we might be able to use in place as well. And then last but not least, planetary defense. Okay, it's a big consideration. Learning about the interior structure, learning about how to interact, attach equipment to the surfaces, learning about how these objects may react to an impact, a kinetic impact to deflect them off course, maybe even some more sophisticated means of deflecting them be really, really important. By the way, defense is spelled correctly. I'm Canadian, so that's the correct spelling of defense. <laughs> okay? And I'm done. I'll take questions. Thanks very much. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.